Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on Rosewater, the new political drama directed by Jon Stewart. And joining me from D.C. is Dave Weigel. Hi, Dave. Hi, Dana. Uh, You are a reporter at Bloomberg Politics. I am. This is my Slate debut as a Slate exile, if that's what you call somebody who, who left by choice. Sadly, but by choice. But, uh, it's, it's, it's a really trauma I'm still adjusting to, for, for <laughs> what it's worth. My PTSD is ameliorating, but it's it's still pretty severe. I can't believe you're not at Slate anymore, but I hope you're enjoying the new job, and I'm glad you're still going to spoil movies with me. Oh, no, I'm excited to spoil this one. Uh, I saw it at a premiere in D.C. I used my, my connections to see a premiere hosted by Jon Stewart that was, it really felt like the laying on of, of hands by the D.C. establishment. So I'm interested to spoil this movie with you because just, by dint of who's produced it, it has this almost must-see, must-talk-about right. air that maybe the movie itself can't quite carry. But By laying on uh, of hands, do you mean that there was a feeling that, that it had to be praised and it had to be kind of held up as, as something worthwhile? It, definitely. That was the feeling I, I got from it. And I don't think—I haven't seen it backlash yet, but— I don't know, I'd like to hear how you describe the goings-on, and we could go into what worked and what didn't. And I, I can talk a little bit about how— I mean, this is a movie that's hard to talk about without the metatextual facts of who produced it and the message and the, the, the place that it's appearing in. I agree. I think that's why we should start to some degree with the metatextual facts and why I'm interested in what the atmosphere was like at the D.C. screening. Because as I say in my review of the movie, I don't think it's really possible to write about this movie without a conflict of interest. If you have any <laughs> affection for Jon Stewart's show or, or kind of long-standing relationship with it the way I do, and I think lots of people who go see this movie will be seeing it because of him. So it's not really a case where you can objectively separate the two things and say, let's just talk about Rosewater as a movie, though I do want to get to that. I think I liked the movie a lot better than you did, and that may just be because I was so relieved that it wasn't a complete vanity project. You know, that it didn't it didn't feel like this utterly misbegotten puff piece that was only existing because Jon Stewart had directed it, which is sometimes the way, for example, an actor-directed movie can feel. Yeah, completely. I mean, it probably helps that he is has not had a great, successful acting career. I mean, I think when he brings up his own acting on The Daily Show, it's to make fun of himself for appearing in Death with Smoochie and things like that. Death he wants Smoochie. us all to forget what movie it was. <laughs> but actually, Death to Smoochie, is, isn't it now sort of a cult hit? Like when Birdman came out, you know, Ed Norton's in Death to Smoochie and people were sort of singing its praises in this <laughs> in this cult way. Yeah. So were you surprised this wasn't more of a vanity project or did it in fact feel like a vanity project to you? It felt like Stewart is taking on more of a role, I think more knowingly, of a avatar for what he th- what, what he thinks is good journalism what he thinks is worthwhile journalism so i saw this movie again at a, at this dc premiere uh he after he, it was stewart it was um mazar bahari who is the star the star who was played in the in the film by gal gasir banal who is not actually iranian but I think the re- most of the rest of the cast seems to be pretty Iranian. I think that was just the one we no, needed. We actually, need a star. not at all. This is another point that I made in my review: is that this cast is so international that it's almost a diss on Iran. I mean, the only major role played by an Iranian, and it's not that major, I think, is the mother, Shuray Agdashlu, who's of course this star in Iran and one of the few Iranian actresses who's made the jump and made some Hollywood movies too. But, but we've got a Turk me, in there. We've play, got also Iraqis. Uh, and I've yeah, yeah, she's an all-purpose, yeah. all-purpose Middle Easterner for sure. And I'm sure that there's, you know, there's lots of extras here and there and various smaller characters that are Iranian. But but the the major uh, interrogator in prison who we'll get to, the guy who's known as Rosewater, is played by a Danish actor named Kim Bodnia, who I thought was fantastic. And uh, and there's, a I don't know, a, a Brit playing one of his buddies, Davoud, the guy who gets jailed, you know, shortly after him. 
I think Stuart made that decision consciously and also made this very funny conventional old Hollywood decision to have everyone just speak English to each other with whatever accent they have. Maybe there's some vague attempts at a Farsi accent, but in general, you know, we're just hearing Mexican Gael Garcia Bernal speak with his accent as an Iranian. Yeah, that was a little bit jarring at, at, at times because he, he, he is supposed to be coming home, I think. Uh, so we should kind of set up what happens in the movie. I mean, it's easy, easy to spoil because it's based on reality. Uh, but Yelvarsir Bernal plays M- Mazir, who is a expat Iranian journalist working for British a, a British network and for Newsweek, stringing for Newsweek, which is a source of much comedy in the movie, which I, which I felt a little bit bad about being in the same industry. Uh, he goes to cover the Iranian elections, and as they turn into a revolt against the government, he is captured by the secret police and imprisoned. Tortured, uh, tortured towards the end of the imprisonment, mostly in solitary confinement, until he confesses, and then after he confesses. Um, that's basically the plot, and you can you can look it up. But what found, what I found interesting was how it's not quite a story of one man standing up to power because he actually buckles at points. It doesn't follow the kind of the the typical hero's journey. The, the, just the only odd thing about it being Garcia Bernal is he's supposed to be a home a boy coming home. I think when he arrives in the airport in Iran, he the taxi driver's trying to butter him up, and he says, "No, I'm from here." And I, I was like, "Well, all right, if you say so, I'll, I'll go along with Garcia Bernal being Iranian." So, would you want, let's talk about how he lands in prison in the first half hour or so of the movie, which is completely different from the rest. I mean, before it settles into being essentially a two-person drama, which I think is the strongest part of the movie, there's this attempt on Stewart's part to set up the whole revolution, basically, right, with flashbacks and flash-forwards and crowd scenes and, you know, sort of essentially trying to weave this larger political story. And I think that is a lot weaker. It's almost, I feel as if in that part he's giving me this kind of primer, you know, like an internet primer on what the Green Revolution was. Yeah, it's chintzian parts. There's this one scene in which Mazera is describing how the news of the revolution is picking up everywhere, and Stewart actually has hashtags populate the landscape. You know, these these blue hashtagged words forming uh, on the buildings and forming on, I think, a map of the entirety of Iran. Yeah, that which... to me, that was the nadir of embarrassment. Yeah. That was the moment, <laughs> along with the, the kind of awkward moment where um, Jason Jones appears, and we'll get to that, and where The Daily Show makes an appearance in the movie, which it sort of has to because it was part of the real story. But anyway, yeah, those hashtags floating over the, I think, real documentary footage of the crowds in, in Iran was really uncomfortable. It felt to me sort of, I don't know, it just felt like it was at the level of Coney 2012 or something, you know, like <laughs> some sort of amateurly produced web video trying to educate you about the Iranian revolution. Yeah, but the, that whole section is a bit ham-handed and not very funny. And, and I, you can kind of tell that Stewart did not want to go into this movie doing anything silly that would make you recall what he does for a living until the Jason Jones thing, which I'll, I'll, I'll let you bring up. I just thought I was not quite with the movie for that, that whole sequence. It starts with um, Mazir in bed being woken up by the secret police and it flashes back. Uh, it, it actually, no, it starts with this very heavy-handed description of how of Rosewater itself, how he associates it with the mosque, and how he thought only holy men wore it. And his torturer is then seen spritzing himself with Rosewater as he goes to capture him. But when Mazir wakes up, uh, his mother, Shuri Ashtaglu, is sort of standing and trying to do what she can before these guys capture her son. And, uh, and... I think she, she's offering them offering them tea 
the torturer says, I don't want to be in any trouble. And the line could have ended there. You kind of get the point that there being a lot of trouble. And she says, you're in my home and you're trying not to be... It, the, the dialogue just seemed very, very wooden until the capture happens. Right. It's almost like, I different. wish you could just, you could go into this movie already briefed, like take a pill yeah. that makes you know the whole setup so that you could just get straight to Gael Garcia Bernal in prison with the Rosewater torturer. Because I think that's where the movie becomes a real movie, which for me it did. And I'm curious whether for you that ever happened. I mean, to my surprise, um, especially for a political drama that, like you say, can be sort of wooden and feel like everybody's just representing some ideological concept. At that moment, the, the movie started to become about two real characters for me. It, it did. So... M- Mazir is captured. I-, I like these choices. I like these choices that Stuart made uh, of not having uh, having him go on a journey that makes a lot of sense. If you've ever, ever seen a movie like this, I mean, if you've seen a Midnight Express or uh, anything where a guy, Shawshank Redemption, anything, there are just cliched scenes and beats where we are familiar with. Uh, and the hero never breaks down. Uh, no, he's captured. It's never quite... It's clear he's captured because he's been broadcasting footage of the government cracking down on the protests following the fraudulent election. But although the movie never actually shows, I was curious looking back that the movie never actually shows him posting that footage. They show him debating whether or not to publish it. Do we ever know for a fact exactly where that footage ends up and how the authorities find out about it? No, we don't. I mean, he says in this hotel room with his producers, and there is a line I liked where one of the producers kind of assumes that the Iranian youth backing Ahmadinejad are street street kids being bribed, and Mazir points out, no, they're, this, this particular spokesman they're working with is a rich British kid who moved to Iran to join the revolution. I mean, there's the this kind of Orientalism-rich crew of people, and I think you get the sense they published it, but there's not a clear line from what they did to Mazir getting getting arrested, even and that leads to the the Daily Show real world intrusion, which is also it, in those in that first awkward half hour of the movie. Yeah, could you explain exactly what happens there? Because it does take you out. Of, it, there's no way for that not to take you out of the movie. It's right. Strange. I mean, it's trying to show in very compressed form what happened in real life and and how John Stewart got mixed up in this whole story to begin with, which is just that while Bahari was in Tehran covering. The, uh, the revolution, Jason Jones interviewed him for one of those correspondence segments, a fake interview, right? And they did this satirical comic interview. And uh, and then that tape, that footage was later used by his torturers as it was adduced as this evidence that he, in fact, was a spy, right? An American spy. So the satire was completely lost on them and it became this serious document. And that's how John Stewart started to feel implicated in this whole story, started to talk about Bahari's imprisonment on his show during the 118 days that he was imprisoned and eventually had him on the show after he was out after he, he wrote his book about it. So you wouldn't be able to tell this story without some mention of The Daily Show. But to me, that was just such a bizarre fourth wall breaking moment when we're sitting here trying to forget that it's Jon Stewart's movie and that it's a comedy host making a movie and the novelty of that. And then in comes Jason Jones wearing a keffiyeh, right? Wearing a Yasser Arafat style scarf and interviewing um, Gael Garcia Bernal. And it was just really hard to to come back from that in a way, even though it was if, 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 if it could be such, you could say that this that scene of this comedy filming was handled seriously right it was played completely straight it's it's played straight and the we call the torturer rosewater and that's the way he's referred to in the credits uh although he's only called the specialist right he's only referred to as the specialist by his specialist the specialist is coming to talk to you uh he uh yeah he he plays that clip to him because 
it's the whole theme of the of the Daily Show segment is that the Iranian government is claiming that all these journalists who are critical of them are spies. So he it's that he plays that that he admits he's a spy in there. But the rest of what Rosewater slash the specialist is playing to grind him down, I actually I found that pretty gripping because it's it's really not clear what the guy can possibly do to get out of there. He gets him he tries to get him to confess to why he has Anton Chekhov in his Facebook page and why he listens to the music of Leonard Cohen since he's Jewish and things like that. And it's never quite clear what he's going to do to get out of there in his, in his uh, mind, which is represented by an actor playing his father. He remembers that his father, uh, Mazir now, not, not, not the torturer was tortured by the, uh, by the old regime, by the Shah because he was a communist and his father tells him not to break down, then he does. And that's what I thought was just the part of the movie that stuck with me. I wasn't overly impressed by it, but the fact that he gives a confession on TV and you see the scenes of his, his family members crying and that he, he, he disappoints his father and everything that does not end the movie. The movie just keeps, keeps going on because there is no clear, there isn't going, not going to be a clear resolution. To well, because what, the to confession doesn't him, get him out. And, out. and no. I think actually, I mean, those are ways in which I think, in its sort of undramatic way, it, it does subvert that Shawshank redemption narrative or the torture narrative that you expect to see, right? Which is that there's a question of whether you'll break and then your father, your ghost of your father comes to you in your jail cell and says, don't break and you still break and you're still kept in prison. I think that sort of got at, you know, the absurdity of a lot of these authoritarian seizures of people, right? That there's, you, you get somebody in jail and you have to find something for them to confess to or some reason to keep them there just to sort of keep the whole machine going. So the absurdity and kind of the black comedy of, you know, of, of, of authoritarian regimes. I think this movie got at in a way that plenty of more conventional political dramas haven't. Yeah. Mazir's only triumph is, is there's, there's this classic triumph of the spirit scene in which on day 112 or whatever, the days are kind of marked uh, with uh, inter, you know, intertitles from time to time. Uh, is just dancing to Leonard Cohen's, I think it's a live version of Dance Me to the End of Love, which, and he's like he's swaying around dancing, and uh, Stewart has uh, said at this thing, uh, the, the premiere I saw, that he originally tried to get Leonard Cohen to cameo in that scene to appear in the dream sequence, and instead just went with him dancing and swaying. But that's the closest that he comes to transcendence. Uh, is is that he's not saved by by his own moral integrity or anything he does? He's saved because. Some, you know, frankly, probably because of the Daily Show segment, and to some respect, he becomes an international cause. And there's another kind of cheesy scene of him, sort of. It's it's weird. He's like he's imagining the coverage around the world, and also we see the actual coverage of Rachel Maddow and CNN and all these international networks promoting that there's this and Hillary Clinton. I think we also see mentioning his case. That's how he's freed. It's just because he it becomes problematic for them to keep torturing him. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, I have to throw in one caveat, which is that I loved that scene of him dancing to the Leonard Cohen song. I thought it was one of the high points of the movie. Oh, no, it's awesome. I'm just saying that's the one transcendence he gets. Otherwise, he's just kind of beaten around and being sad. Yeah. Right. But I mean, it wouldn't really be that meaningful for him to remain firm under these circumstances. It's not like someone else's safety is at stake, right? He's not protecting any specific person. Although it does turn out that the uh, the guy who drove him around, his driver in Tehran, is captured. That could have happened whether he confessed or not. So I, I, I don't know. that it's, it's not as if what the moral balance here that we're weighing is whether or not Gael Garcia Bernal will, will confess. Yeah, it's not. It's that's kind of what I liked about it. I mean, I think it may it would be disappointing for some people to watch this and not see a, a clear narrative. But 
he is it's a, it's a story of a of a journalist who lived through something harrowing and wrote a book to tell about it and became a cause but the story is more that this stuff happens and it's going to keep happening there's nothing that extraordinary about him apart from the fact that other family members went through this yeah. the, the movie ends uh, not with him. I mean, it, it ends kind of, it tells us in the credits that he f- made it back to Britain to see the birth of his kid. But it ends with some of the information that presumably someone else revealed under torture, which is this, uh, what they call it, Dish University, this area of Tehran where people have illegal satellite dishes where they can read the international news. It's getting, see the international news. It's getting smashed by the secret police and a child is taping it with a cell phone camera. And the implication is that this will... This information cannot be suppressed, even if the government kind of bluntly and stupidly tortures people for long periods of time. Right. So it ends on it does end on this sort of optimistic, somewhat hopeful, revolutionary note. We didn't we haven't talked about the relationship between Rosewater, the torturer and the uh, the Gael Garcia Bernal character yet. And like I said, I think that is really the dramatic heart of the movie. I, I feel like I'm winning you over to my side, Dave, because you were supposed <laughs> to come in and tear it down. And you're agreeing with me about the I'm good not, parts. I, I'll tear it down. I don't think it's that compelling of a movie. It's just I like I think it's an interesting experiment and it's a decent use of Stewart's celebrity, a good use of his celebrity to to publicize this. I mean, in the interviews he's given uh, and like everywhere it's about the movie, he'll he'll differentiate between the sort of clicky journalism that uh, that predominates and the stupidity of cable and then credit the people who actually risk their lives to 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 show authoritarianism or show the truth. And I think so it's it's a good use of what John Stewart has in the world, but it's not that fun as a movie apart from a couple of scenes. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't recommend people go see it. I'm just glad it exists. Hmm. See, I actually depending on the person, I might recommend that people go see it. If you if you like a sort of low-key political drama, something that's not a super high stakes saving the world, but it is more just about sort of the experience of political imprisonment, I thought it was pretty powerful. And and well, so I and I really do love thinking, those scenes, yeah. for example, as long as we're spoiling here. We haven't really given away anything. But that scene toward the end, the big scene where um where Gael Garcia Bernal's character kind of baits the hook and starts telling all these strange sexual stories about his experiences at massage <laughs> parlors, completely fabricated because he's put together over the course of his imprisonment that that this guy Rosewater is kind of turned on by such details right like when they're ransacking his apartment at the beginning he keeps calling everything pornography that he finds including the sopranos and just you know every random cd or movie that he finds and that Gaugasi Bernal starts to put together that he's obsessed with sex and so he starts to spin these kind of Scheherazade like tales to essentially kind of keep the guy amused and quiet enough that he can get out of the sessions, right? What is his exact goal in uh, in telling those sexy stories? I, I think it's just messing with the system uh, because he's there is no clear way out of it and there's nothing he can do or say that is, 100, that is guaranteed to save him. Um, I mean... I, thought, I just, just thought that was yeah. a lot of, there was really some sly comedy in that scene that felt like it was earned by all the scenes that had come before. And to be able to turn, you know, the relationship of a torturer and his torturee into into something that has that kind of psychological complexity, I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, if the first 30 minutes are, are, are wooden, the humor actually all comes during the prison scenes. And it's, uh, there's nothing to look at apart from this dank, you know, d- not like a stone prison. It's just a, it's a bland corporate kind of structure that's just very dark all the time with one prison yard where you can almost see the sun. Uh, in that, well, yeah, the absurdity of the situation is the thing that produces the the actual the actual laughs because the rest of it, uh, 
It was funny, actually. Stewart says said he he made Mazir a little bit less heroic than the real life than the real life uh, subject of the movie. And there's a scene early on that um, in which he's debating whether or not to film things. I mean, they kind of set this up. He hesitates to film the Dish University because he knows if he does, it might get broken up. And he's hesitating to film one of the riots after the election. And his uh, transporter says, "You have a weapon and you don't even use it," meaning the camera. And that's just that's not that's not how it went. I mean, Mazir was more was more courageous than all that. He did not hesitate to film this stuff. But in prison, like there, what was he? That didn't matter at all. It was just going to be beat down by the state no matter what he did. Right. Well, and in prison also, he's not necessarily shown as being this this really hardcore dude, right? There's a lot of like crying and cowering. And maybe part of why I really identified with this part is that that's probably how I would behave in under political imprisonment. <laughs> you know, I mean, you just sort of feel like he's a real guy. He wants to get home to his pregnant wife. He wants this all to end. And he's trying to think strategically about how to extract himself from the situation rather than how to be the biggest hero possible. Yeah, knowing that his family's been through this before, what does he do? And he's just, you don't come across, I mean, you, he is not going to go in the pantheon of, of cinema prisoners like Cool Hand Luke and Tim Robbins and the Shawshank Redemption. Like, there's nothing he does that is that heroic. He's just annoyed. <laughs> he's annoyed and scared and makes fun of it sometimes and dances one time, but otherwise it's just monotony that he knows he knows he's the latest of his family to live through. That's not metatextual. I mean, that's within within the movie you are told that other family members have gone through this thing. That is richer than the average prison movie, even if the way that the drama's unspooled is not. Uh, the one thing, I thought it was a, a choice, maybe, but it looks like it just might have been accidental. The Rosewater torturer, or just Rosewater, we keep calling him, uh, looks exactly like his supervisor. <laughs> And yeah, that was that a was... really poor casting choice, right? Putting two yeah. characters in similar positions of authority, essentially Rosewater and his boss, the guy who was pressuring him. We see that downward pressure on him to get confessions out of Bahari, but they look exactly alike. So it, it takes a long time to figure out what's the deal with these two torturers and which one is, is doing what. Yeah, completely. And I thought that might have been a choice and that the, the, the state was so bland and chintzy that these guys look the same. It might it it just made it kind of unclear. I mean, the the. It, it's just I kept going back and forth on whether the monotony of this very long prison stuff, which is about an hour of the movie, if that was intentional and we were meant to, meant to feel trapped, or if it was just you know, just kind of randomly uh, randomly put together. I mean, it's 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 chronological, but it skips it skips to it skips to days with not even much of a countdown. I mean, you're aware that his wife is pregnant. Uh, there's a scene of her being fairly pregnant in the beginning, and he jokes that she's only a month she's only a month in the pregnancy. And then there's a phone call that he's allowed to make where she looks about as pregnant as she did before. But there's not like a ticking clock that he's trying to get there before his kid is born or anything. That's just that's there, but there's not much of a sense of momentum. He's just going to he's just in prison and would like to get out at some point. Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, I liked that it it wasn't structured with the classic ticking clock legend in the left lower hand corner of the screen. You know, just the sort of standard born ultimatum way of turning everything into a thriller and that it got a little bit at that feeling of lostness of being in prison, that you don't know how time is passing or how much time has passed and that you're just kind of isolated from the world. Yeah, you've converted me on a couple of these points. I still would not recommend this movie to most people the way I'd recommend like a classic Triumph of the Spirit movie. Uh, I, I, I appreciate that it exists and I appreciate the unglamorous nature with which it treats the stuff, but I found it 
a little little bit monotonous. I mean, a little bit, little bit di- didactic in the way that Stewart can sometimes get when he's criticizing the media. I mean, like, I'm glad he does it, but it's not always that fun to listen to. Yeah, I would agree. But I think the, the didacticism is in the frame. I think it's like a, a sandwich with didactic bread <laughs> and, and really interesting filling in the middle when he kind of gets away from the ideology of trying to frame the revolution for us or give us hope that, you know, there will always be somebody to film Dish University at the end. I think the stuff that happens in between that is the interesting stuff. And one last short question for you before you go, Dave. Would you look forward to another movie from Jon Stewart, or would you be happy if this was the beginning and end of his career as a director and writer? Uh, I, I think he's... I felt the same way about this as I feel about Colbert going to the uh, Late Show. I mean, Stewart's role in pop culture as this media critic sometimes is kind of tiresome, but it's really useful. I think we would miss it if it was gone. Same thing with Colbert as a, as a, as a satirical character. I think is more fun than most of the other stuff he does. So I'm okay with. I mean, I would not chain Stewart to the desk forever. Uh, I would not be his personal rosewater and make him do the show <laughs> without any hope of release. But I'm okay if he just keeps doing that instead of instead of movies. But if he finds like if he finds another cause, another Something Coney's taken already, but another, <laughs> another cause he wants to promote. Uh, I wouldn't stop him. I mean, I'm glad to have learned this story, even though I didn't have a ton of fun watching it. Yeah, no, I feel like whatever part of him that goes into making The Daily Show that is a director, the part of him that is, you know, creating a, a narrative work from scratch, has has it in him to be an interesting film director as well. And I wouldn't be against him picking up the camera again. All right, Dave, thanks so much for coming in. And please tell me next time you want to spoil something, because it's always fun to spoil with you. Oh, it's always great. Thank you. Our producer is Chris Wade. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.